Hi, guys, and welcome back to the Unbothered Blondes podcast. It's me, Kate. This is the first time I've ever done an intro before because for the past few episodes, Randa has been interviewing me. So I'm really excited to take the reins and to learn more about Randa because I'm sure there's a lot of things that I'm not going to know. And a little thing I have to say is for the longest time, I did not know how to pronounce your name, Randa. Really? Because a lot of people. Grant had me so confused he messes with everyone with calling me all the crazy names <laughs> Cooper's like is it Rhonda I'm like no I don't think so like I had a photographer that we worked with for two years that clearly knew Grant and I you know we were friends outside of even like working together with photography and he even questioned it after Grant started doing that so I yes. tell him he has to stop because I grew up where people didn't know how to pronounce my first or my maiden name so I'm used to it well, you have a very unique name very Well, I'm excited to get started. So this week's episode is going to be all about your childhood and everybody's really, really antsy to get into the business side of things, but that's a whole episode on its own, right? Yes. I think that'll be the next episode. And I feel like kind of talking about my upbringing, it will all make a lot of sense then when we dive into the business side and not only make a lot of sense, but I think it will make like come to light of some risks that I took that people might not understand how risky they were for me. Well, I'm excited to dive in because I want to know more. I know everybody else wants to know more. So let's get started with the very beginning. Tell us about Randa and where you're from. Okay, well, my name is Randa. My maiden name was Yezik, and no one knew how to pronounce that. I've now been married for almost four years to Grant, so my last name now is Caraba, so Randa Caraba. But I grew up a very small-town girl. I'm from a very small town in Texas, halfway between College Station and Waco. It's called Bremond, and there's 800 people. And I graduated high school with 30 people. So when I say small town, like by the time you did anything Saturday night, everyone in the front pew at church on Sunday morning already knew that is exactly how I grew up. And on top of that, my dad is our county sheriff. So he was um, the lead deputy up until I was in third grade. And then in third grade, the current sheriff who had been sheriff forever was retiring and he wanted my dad to be sheriff. So he backed him, but it was a race of six people, which in like a small town, you can imagine how that was, especially like at third grade, you're kind of starting to learn a little bit about life. And I remember like, get, like knowing that some of my friends' parents weren't voting for my dad, you know, like just like stuff like that, that kind of like affects you at a young age or makes you yeah. like kind of like question things or start to like see things and, and like wonder about trust and all these different things. But anyways, when my dad ran for sheriff, when I was in third grade, you have to think back then there was no social media. So like when my dad was running, my mom and dad were, you know, door to door knocking, you know, talking to people. They were at every county event and function. So was I was in third back, grade, like door to door. Yeah. And I was in third grade. My brother was in pre-k at the time so we were basically staying with my grandparents or like my some of my parents friends we were kind of like gypsy children a little bit that year because my parents had to work so hard with the campaign especially with six people running and so you know like election is in november so it was like i think they started in march because of the primary so like march to november they were like the whole year working and then they get like my dad won and he got sworn in on january 1st and so i was in fourth grade then and on january January 10th, when I was in fourth grade and my brother was in kindergarten and I'll try not to cry. um, My mom had a major stroke. And all I know is um, my teacher came and like took me out in the hallway and she actually like left school with me. 
Um, so she like got a sub in there. So she actually drove, like picked my, my brother up with me and she drove us to the hospital um, because my mom had like completely fallen like unconscious at work and she was only 30 years old. So my mom got married really young to my dad. They were, uh, she was engaged her senior year of high school, engaged like at, I guess, 17 years old, married at 19, had me at 20. So she was 30 years old when this happened, which is crazy because I'm 33 now. So she had a so major like stroke. A reason, like, I mean, I'm really So curious. my mom was born with a heart defect and like a slower heartbeat. And what's crazy is the day before her stroke, she actually had um, an appointment with her heart doctor and they had put this um, like monitor on her to watch it. So that was really good. That, that was on there. It was just like a God thing. And so my mom, her stroke had to do with her heart. And basically the mitra, like now she has a steel mitra valve. So like the main valve that pumps blood to her heart is like a steel. So if you're really quiet around my mom, you'll hear her tick because of that. So yeah, it was crazy. I was in fourth grade and my dad had just got sworn in the sheriff. My parents, you know, we had had that crazy year of election and, um, my mom then had to undergo open heart surgery. She'd have a, had to have a pacemaker. She had to have the steel mitre valve. And what was crazy, I can still vividly remember it. And I'm sure there are listeners who have had things with their parents. But when I walked in to see my mom, she couldn't speak. She couldn't move the entire right side of her body because it affected the left side of her brain. And like the doctors didn't know if my mom would ever fully function again. Because, you know, with the stroke, you don't know if no, you'll come back. And she was now, so young. Right? I mean... Yeah, I remember her trying to smile at me and it was like only one side of her body would move. She couldn't even truly smile at me. And it was like, you know, fourth grade is such a hard age to see something like that. You know, if you're in your teenage years, you understand a little bit more. No, So I that was really hard. And we went home that night and I don't think I'd ever saw my dad like break down until like, you know, that day. And there's something about seeing your dad cry. Oh my God, is there. And so um, my, my mom was still, when she tells the story, she's very religious. She plays the church at um, three church. She plays the organ at church three, to- three times every Sunday. So she goes to three different churches. And then if anyone in our town like gets married or has a funeral, they call my mom. And so not only does she play the organ, but she also song leads. So she sings. And she said she was laying there in bed like, dear Lord, you know, I can't speak. I can't move all of my body. My husband, and my children are coming to see me. You know, I just want to be able to communicate with them. And what's crazy is the Lord gave my mom her singing voice before he gave her her talking voice back. So, so she was singing. Yes. Oh and so she's um, she's pretty much full back to normal. She's um, like she works. She still plays the organ and sings and everything. When she gets really tired, you can tell a little bit on the right side of her body, um, you know, that she's more tired and that that side doesn't function as much. But that was a huge thing in my childhood. You know, when I think of that, that was um, probably another really thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then my um, my great grandparents lived till I was in fourth and fifth grade. Um, and then let's see what else about my childhood. Oh, when I was 15, it's a little bit past childhood, but when I was 15, I drove my dad to the emergency room. I had my, um, permit, like not my real driver's license yet. And he had a heart attack and like had a hundred percent blockage, a full on stint. Like I was there with him through the night by myself. Cause my mom accident, like actually had a flat on her car, which I again think was God. Cause I don't know if she could have probably handled it handled as well. It. 
Yeah. So I dealt with a lot of like, you know, kind of like health trauma, I guess, in my immediate family growing up, because not only going from that year of election where we like camped out a lot, well, then my mom had such recovery, it, you know, that there were times we needed to go be with other people so that my mom could just like focus on getting recovered. So you probably had to grow up really, really quick. Yes. And, you know, another thing that I remember, like, that would be different about other girls versus me growing up is when I would go stay the night at someone's house, like, I had no, um, I, like, I didn't miss my parents. Like, not in a bad way, but, like, I was fully engaged wherever I was. And I remember Girl, some girls saying, I was ready to go. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I tell Grant all the time, I'm like, I was a village baby. I think it's why I'm so outgoing. And so, like, we'll just jump to anything is because I kind of was, like, passed around. Like, it takes a whole village, right? And I would never like have where I wanted to like skip school to be with my mom or I wanted to come home early from a friend's house, like whatever activity I was doing, I wanted to be full forced in it. And I noticed when some girls would come stay the night with me, some they of them couldn't make home. it through the night. Yeah. They'd like miss their mom and have to go home or they would always say they were sick or something. And I, I just didn't really comprehend it. And isn't that crazy? Cause now me and you both so similar personalities are, were that way as children. Yes. Isn't that crazy? And so my that's dad why I had to beg me to come home. So I understand. Yeah, <laughs> I get that. Like staying the night on a school night that some kids are not like that. Right. And see, it was normal for me because of the between my parents campaigning and like my mom's health issues when we were so young. And then yeah. on top of it, my brother was three, three years, three months younger than me, um, but four years in school. So I think that there was a lot of times that, you know, when you go through trauma, you really cling to your sibling. And so I feel like I kind of became, I'm not going to say maternal or motherly, because we know obviously that, and we'll talk about that later. But I think that's where my independence or my like nurturing, my like all handle things kind of came from, because not only did I need to handle them for myself, but I needed to look out for my little brother in that situation too. I completely understand. And I think you give off a very like, even though you don't think you're very maternal, I think that you seem like a protector and a provider, yes. which yes. can be maternal. So I think it's a little bit of both. Yes, I would definitely agree to that. So, so that was my childhood. As a child, you were pretty much sheriff's daughter, kind of under a microscope mm -hmm. and the outgoing bubbly same girl that you are now. Yes. And my grandparents, my mom's parents were super involved with me. Like my Nana would pick us up from school every day because my parents both worked. They're very, we are middle-class people, like hardworking people live within our means. I had no design or anything growing up. Plus like living in a small town like that, you had to drive an hour just to get to like a JC Penny, much less like I didn't know what real fancy brands were. I remember I got a Tommy Hilfiger jacket when I was in seventh grade and I thought I was doing something, you That's know, a big deal. Yeah, it was a real big deal. So like my Nana would pick us up from school, my Popo farmed, he had like a little um, uh, hair barber shop. And so my Nana like taught us to cook. We would come home from work every day and we would, I'm not work <laughs> from school every day. And we would help my Nana prepare dinner and like do laundry and stuff because my parents were working so much. You know, my dad was on call with law enforcement a lot. And then my mom, um, she still went back to work after, you know, all of her health stuff too. So I feel like I learned a lot of, you know, like how to take care of basic household things that a lot of kids don't learn. And like my Nana had a garden and she still does. And we, we grew up like working in my Nana's garden. I grew up showing cattle. So we had show animals we'd have to wake up and feed. So yeah, there was just a lot of responsibility from a very young age. And honestly, I think that's a blessing in disguise. It may have felt like a lot as, as a kid or maybe not right. the same as other kids. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I remember I was thinking what all I wanted to talk about. And I remember like talking about being like middle class and living within our means, which I cannot commend my parents enough for the money management that they instilled within me. And because I think even that's now, huge. Like, you are like that, like, you know, it's yes. so important because even if you yes. make money, if you're not saving money, it means nothing. Oh, absolutely. You know, and with starting Southern Jewels, like I didn't pay myself for three years because I needed to put it all back into like inventory and storefront stuff and growing the business. So I got used to like living off of just what I needed. And still, um, Grant and I, we live off about 10% of our income and do the rest in savings and growth and, and giving back and stuff like that. So it's just huge. And I feel like I learned that from a young age because I remember like, and not that I knew that much, and I really don't think I ever struggled that much with like envy or comparison. And I know that's a big thing with social media, but I really want to talk about how I'm not saying I'm like, I don't ever struggle with it, but I think I struggle with it a lot less than the average person. And I think it's because I always just like compare myself to like what, how I grew up or who I was yesterday or what I thought my life would be. But I do remember coming home to my mom one day and like saying, how does this girl, like I knew that you know, her dad wasn't in her life and her mom. So I knew that she only had one income to where like my parents had two and not like they made a lot of money, but you know, it's all like the same realm in a small town. Exactly. But I didn't understand how she would always have like the new up to date, everything and could spend all this money and go do all these things. And I remember when my mom sat me down, I was probably 10 years old and she very much explained to me what debt was, what a credit card was, you know, what a budget was, what living within your means. And I remember her telling me like, if you pass away and you're in debt, you know, someone else in your family inherits that. And then you put them in a bind. And like, I was so young, but that stuck to me. I was like, I never want someone to do that to me. And I never want to do that to anybody else. So that is one thing I think growing up a hardworking middle-class girl from, parents who are wonderful money managers that didn't live without outside of their means. I feel like that really was a great basis of me starting business and being able to make it. And I knew immediately when I started speaking to you that you were not somebody that like grew up. I, I could tell that you had a good life, but you weren't, you didn't grow up to super spoiled. You know what Correct. I'm saying? Like when you speak to people, sometimes you can just tell even early mm-hmm. in this age now that we're just living a really plush lifestyle. They don't even think about things that we think about. Yeah. Like when I went to college, you know, um, my parents did buy the duplex that I lived in, but I presented to, I presented it to them as a business still my freshman year. So they bought it for my sophomore year and I managed it. So like if I kept everything rented, then all the rent would cover the mortgage. And then I would like mow the grass and basically be like the landlord, but my parents, it was their finances. Right. And so we were ever like short a tenant, then I had to come up with that rent. So there was still like risk on my shoulders, but my parents did that for me. And so that helped, but also it wasn't just like given to me, you know, with no responsibility. And I, I never, ever had my parents credit card in college or ever. And I remember seeing, you know, I think when I got to college, I started being friends with with people who are from bigger cities. And so I think with that comes maybe so like some more money or some more opportunity in some ways. And so my eyes were open to people who would just kind of spend their parents' money carefree or pop out their parents' credit card. And I just never had that. But at the same time, I grew up like so rich in like quality, love and like just work ethic and lessons. And I would much prefer to grow up the way that we grew up, you know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with spoiling your kids, but you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And you know, like my husband, I mean, he grew up, um, a lot wealthier than me, but at the same time, they didn't live lavishly either. He was working at the family business all through summer. You know, he didn't wear all the designer stuff. And so I think 
and I've, you know, I, I have friends who have, are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. I have friends who live paycheck to paycheck. And what's crazy is sometimes the friends of mine who are worth so much money have a better work ethic than some that I have that aren't like that. Well, so I don't think it's are inspired always. by their Absolutely. surroundings. Yeah. Or some people like, you know, just because they came from money, they don't want people to think that they're just dependent upon their family and they want to make their own. Which I think is good. You can play off either side. I just have never been lazy. So I think even if I grew up with money, I think I still would have been a hustler like you. Totally. And another thing that I really, that sticks out about my childhood is, you know, a lot of parents will be like force their kids to do things or like live through their kids or like, you know, if they wanted to be a big time football star, but weren't, then they're going to like push their kid to be, you know, on the football traveling team or whatever. My parents were not like that. Like they weren't competitive. They didn't like push us to do certain things unless we wanted to. And if we wanted to do it, we could do it, but we couldn't quit. And so if there was ever something going on that we didn't like, or we got into it, my dad's like, I don't care. You signed up for this. You're finishing it. You don't have to do it next year, but you are finishing what you started. And so, you know, that's a big thing too, because I remember like in junior high, you'd start seeing people that would start the track team and quit and it would just look so easy. But like my parents never wanted the easy way out to even be an option for me. I've related to a lot of things you've said, but that's probably the most to me because I cannot tell you how many times I wanted to quit basketball track or cheerleading just because I got lazy near the end of the year. And same mm-hmm. thing my dad said to me. He's like, you signed up for this, so you're doing it. You you're know, sticking this one out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I grew up showing livestock and being like in 4-H and FFA, which, you know, it's a lot of responsibility. It comes with leadership positions. Um, but that allowed me to like make scholarship money. And, you know, if, with this like show cattle world or like show livestock world in general, there's a lot of people that just spend a lot of money on like a start project for their kid. And then the kid like never takes care of it. He like, he or she grabs it right before the show ring shows it and then comes back out, but like misses everything else. And I remember I was on the exact opposite side. Like I always had to buy my own projects with my own savings money from like the year before of my projects So it wasn't like my parents would just throw all this money at it. And then I had to like work hard with my animals so that they would, you know, show the best and like perform the best and grow the best and fill out the best and all that kind of stuff. So I think all of those things just set me up for so much success down the road. So you kind of just have to look at it as a blessing you know, it got you to where you are today. And I think that's why you absolutely, you know, you started working at Sonic when you were what, 15 15. Okay. So I started my first job when I was 14. So before I was self-employed, which I've been self-employed ever since college, um, I only ever had two jobs. And one I started when I was 14 and it was for my godfather. Um, He owned the local uh, newspaper, the Bremont Press. And so I was really good at keyboarding. Mm -hmm. Like I could keyboard really, really fast. And so obviously for the paper, you have to type up all the articles, all the captions. So they hired me to come in as a typesetter. And so I would help them get like the whole paper typed and laid out and everything. And I wasn't even driving yet. So my, my godfather would have to drive me home. And like, I remember we would go to print on early Thursday morning. So Wednesday night we would work till at least midnight. And so he would drive me home so late because I couldn't, you know, drive obviously. So I thought that you and I had a lot in common there. And then my senior year of high school, I presented to my mom, like basically this whole kind of like business plan because from showing animals, I was eligible for a lot of scholarships. Like I would win scholarships at some shows, but then also like when you're involved in things like 4-H and F, 
FFA, a lot of scholarship opportunities comes with that, right? So I presented to my mom Mm -hmm. and asked her if I could cut back on working at, for my godfather, like I still worked for him. I just didn't work as much because I had to pay for like my insurance, my gas. If, you know, I was traveling with my high school sports team and I wanted to, you know, have food or snacks, like my parents taught me to budget and have my own money for that. And so that's what I did. So I remember going to my mom saying, hey, I want to cut back on working for my uncle George, but I'm going to, you know, can I do this? And if I need help in the transition, can you help me? Because I presented to her that the time I could save at work, I could put into like filling out scholarship applications. And instead of making $10 an hour, I could actually be making thousands of dollars for my semesters at college. And I graduated valedictorian in my class. So that came with a lot of scholarship money, but I didn't just like bank on that. And so like my show cattle, I won a lot of like scholarship money off of and like with 4-H and FFA. So when I went to college, I actually made money going to college. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. And I want to say that leading into before we talk business, because going to college, I made anywhere from $2,500 to $3,500 back a semester from like extra scholarships than what it cost me to go to college. So I didn't know yes. you were a valedictorian. Yeah, but I, I mean, it was that. a class of 30. So which it's still a big deal, but it's not like a class. That of still matters. Or anything. <laughs> well, it's a big deal. It just goes to show, you know, more than just. Yep. Work a blonde. You know, like people would look at your Instagram and think because you're blonde and, you know, you married somebody that has their own well-known name. And something I want to touch on, too, is everybody wants to know if Grant is related to the Carabas, the restaurant. is. Now, it's not immediate family. Johnny, I believe, is his fourth cousin. So Grant knows the whole story, and maybe when we do a podcast, he'll say it. But basically, when when um, the Carabas came over from from the port of Sicily, Italy, um, they came through Galveston, and you know they were poor farmers back then. And so they were trying to find the best farmland. They stumbled across the bottom here near the Brazos River, and that's how they started here in like the Bryan, Texas area. Well, when the Great Depression hit in 1920s, that's when the family kind of had to split up and go find other work. And so Johnny was part of that family that went to Houston. And so, um, yes, they are related, but it's not like Grant's family business by any means. But there is the Chicken Bryan, Texas on the menu, and that is to pay homage to Grant's grandparents and like the side of the Carabas that still stayed here in the Brazos, you know, area, Bryan, Texas. Which yes. is great yeah. in you, you know, that's amazing. I think that's like one of the, you have so many neat things about you, but I love to tell people, yeah, she's married to people that are Italian <laughs> girl because I love the bread. I tell you like, what's crazy. I was even, t- who did I tell this to today? Oh, the manager at the gym. She was looking at Croy cause I had just got him out of the little daycare and she's like, God, he looks just like Grant, but he's got your eyes. And I was like, you know, his hair's lightening up. Maybe it would get blonde. And I'm like the first time Grant and I ever spent the night together, I rolled over that next morning and I was like, your hair is so dark. <laughs> yes, it's black hair. And I was so shocked whenever I see how uh-huh. light Croy's are, eyes are because they're going to be blue. Yeah. I see blue well, hair. like I'm such a blondie. My brother's such a blondie. Like we're all pretty lightheaded in my family. And so then marrying someone like Grant and not that I dated that much before Grant, which we can get into that later, but I definitely never dated anyone that was like that dark as Grant, like with his hair and stuff or his features. But I love being married to an Italian because there's such like, I don't know, like history and the culture. And we've been to Italy together now and I love the food. Um, Yeah, I love being married to an Italian. 
Well, I'll say this about Grant from my experience being around him. He's like a super host. 100%. Yes. You know what I mean? Like he is like someone that jumps up. We're ready to make a plan. Like he just like makes me feel all warm and cozy. Like he's like the Italian. Yes. And he is like going to take care of everything. Like he's not going to let anything slip. You know, he's a contractor. So he like basically has to babysit subs all the time. So he has to make sure that everything, all all his I's are dotted, all his T's are crossed, all the contracts are done. So anytime he plans anything, it is very detailed, very thorough. He's like on top of it. Well, I kind of want to talk a little bit more about, I guess, high school Randa, because we spoke a lot about me and like, you know, cheerleading and all that thing. I want to know what you did. Like FFA, that's how we ended up meeting because of your roots. So I was that small town girl where you're like, um, I guess part of everything, right? Like I played volleyball, I played basketball, I ran track, I ran cross country. Um, I played softball. I actually was really good at softball back in high school. And now I'm so deathly afraid of the ball. It's crazy. Um, and I was head cheerleader, kind of like what you were saying. Now I wasn't it, um, two years cause you had to be a senior, but I was the head cheerleader my senior year. Um, and then I was like an NHS, um, you know, obviously like the ag stuff with FFA and 4-H. So I was involved in everything. I had a very well-rounded resume, but that was also kind of normal from being from a small town. Like if we made the playoffs in volleyball, we couldn't start basketball season until the playoffs were done because all of our basketball team was still playing volleyball. All the players. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, that's kind of, it's crazy because even when I was telling my story, I didn't even realize how many similarities similarities that we had you know just in childhood so it's crazy how like birds of a feather I believe that term like you and I are, are really really like, totally on the same wavelength well I'd love to hear more about you know your childhood and all of that but I really want to get into how you met Grant and college Randa didn't you meet yes Grant I did college, so right? okay high school Randa was like well-rounded little miss everything you know all valedictorian so excited to go to A&M like I tell everyone I graduated high school on a Friday I had my party on a Sunday I moved to College Station on a Monday and I never went back <laughs> yeah so still you're here. still there and you know there wasn't in my small town and back then there wasn't like the what was it called like dual credit classes in high school so that like wasn't a thing uh-huh. and I remember I think maybe just people it's just how people kind of are maybe because I was from a small town like people were like you know, she's going to go to like the big city of college station and go to, which it is the big city compared to where I'm from. Um, and she's going to like go to Texas A&M where it's such a big university. And right now she's like a big fish in a little pond, but she's going to go there and she's going to be a little fish in a big pond. And there were actually multiple valedictorians and salutatorians from Bremont years previous to me that flunked out of A&M. And so people, I'm not saying they expected that of me, but they also were like, good luck on going and being like the shining star at A&M, you know, like that's a lot bigger of a deal. And so, well, A&M is a very, very yes, to get into but kind of like you, if I hear things like that, it kind of fuels me even a little bit more. So when I came to A&M, I'm telling you my four years of a and I, I thought were the highlight of my life and I still loved them. But when they were over, I thought my life was over. Like I loved college that freaking much. And it wasn't just like the school part of it. It was like, I was in the ag department. I was on the livestock judging team. I worked for Dr. Chris Skaggs. So that would be my second job after my typesetter job um, at a and I was um, Dr. Chris Skaggs assistant and he was like head of the livestock judging program and the animal science department. And that's what my degree was in. So So, you know, I wanted to get my foot in the door and I wanted to have a good work ethic. I wanted to make myself known because, again, I kind of had in the back of my mind people from my town saying, you're going to be a little fish in a big pond. Good luck. And I'm like, no, I'm going to make myself a big fish. (laughs) 
And guess what? Now you're the big yeah. fish in the big pond. Yeah, you so know? I did that. I loved, I loved college. Okay, well, I was like part of everything, traveled. I was still showing Bring His Cattle. I was our international Bring His Queen one year. I was on like the judging teams. And then I'm telling you, when college ended, I thought my life was over. And I graduated in 09, which is, so I'm older than you. But like, remember 2008, 2009 is kind of when that recession hit and like the housing market crashed. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I always thought I would get my master's because I loved academia. I'll be honest, like looking back at college me, I have been humbled a lot in a good way because I kind of got a little big for my britches when I was at A&M in the fact that if you weren't somebody at some university, I kind of thought I was a little bit better than you. And that's horrible to say. Like, I don't want to say that, but I want to be so honest on this podcast, like looking back, if that makes sense. So I kind of... No, I completely understand. And now it honestly doesn't it, mean much of anything unless you just like 100 percent. So I thought <laughs> me going to AM and um like I was our I don't really say this much, but like for this podcast to put it out there, like I was our I was the College of Ags nominee for top senior of the entire university. So there's seven colleges in the university. And so, you know, tens of thousands of people are graduating at a time. And so that was a big deal for me to be like nominated as that based on my GPA and my involvement and my job and just everything. So I was like miss college student. But again, I think I kind of started to get a little like big for my britches and thinking like that's what everyone needed to be. And so whenever the recession hit, I remember being like, okay, I don't really know what I want to get my master's in. And so I wanted to get an MBA. I knew that because I would rather it not be so specialized. I didn't want to like be a vet or, you know, something particular. I wanted it to be in business because my undergrads in animal science and business. Um, But the MBA program at MBA program at A&M, you have to be out in the workforce for two to six years before you can even apply. And I knew my personality. I was like, if I graduate and get out and get a good job and get used to living on money because I've never had money, I won't want to come back to school. Like I need to stick with it right now while I'm used to this and loving college. And so I went and looked at like some MBA programs, I think like at Oklahoma State and Tech. And then Dr. Skaggs had got moved up to where he was like the dean of the whole college of ag. And he like basically gave me the opportunity to get my master's kind of on a silver platter because, you know, he wanted to keep me there because I was like his assistant and his shining superstar student. And, but it was going to be a master's in ag business, not an MBA. And this is what is so crazy of like, whenever I started Southern Jewels, I literally told my college advisor, my, um, you know, my parents, my family, everybody, I said, you know what, I'm going to take a year to just kind of figure life out. And I'm going to see what I can do with my little jewelry business. And I had no previous retail experience. No one in my family was business owners. Like I didn't have the money to just take a year and live. My parents, I wasn't on their money, you know, or like their credit card. I did have my duplex, but I still had to like manage it and run it and take care of it. Um, But I said, give me a year and I'm going to like figure out what I want to do because I saw a lot of people stay in to get their master's and then they were having even harder times getting jobs than people with the undergrad because they were more specialized or they were going to be more expensive to hire. And so I think it was a blessing. I don't think I probably would have ever started my own business had I not graduated during the time of a recession when jobs were very hard to come by, like hardly anybody graduated with a job. I can imagine starting a business like that soon 
out oh, of yeah. college. You know what I mean? Like, I guess it's, well, it's it was really like a rare. hobby. Most of the time you know, I didn't internship. Really a business. I was like just making my own jewelry that I wanted for me. And then other people started wanting to buy it. And so, you know, a little entrepreneurial spirit, me, where I don't really know where it came from, but I'm like, I'm going to go, like I filed a DBA, like the doing business as at the Brazos County courthouse on Christmas break when I was a sophomore in college. Cause I'm like, if people are going to want to buy this from me, I need to run it like a legit business. Which is smart because, you know, it kind of set you up for being a really, really big empire, which is something that we want to talk about on the next episode of your full business background. Because to me, and I know everybody else, that's like the main thing that people know and connect you with is. Yes. And what's crazy is like thinking back, I remember like, what am I going to do? Like having to tell my my parents and my grandparents, because I was a first generation student. I mean, they were so proud of me with my academics. So can you imagine me like I just was up for top senior of the entire university of A&M and I'm telling my advisor and my family, like putting it on hold. <laughs> Going to yeah, do this I don't jewelry have a business. Job, I'm not getting a master's. <laughs> I'm not doing either. I'm going to figure out my little oh hobby my business of making necklaces. <laughs> and so did your parents, no, they did it. I paid for it all on scholarship and I actually scholarship. made money back. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I said, would take okay, the money I see, that I, I made see. back and put that into my cattle business so that I could be growing that business too and set myself up for some income that way as well. So while we're talking about 18-year-old Randa, is there anything that you would want to tell oh yourself God. at 18? You know, now? I saw a lot of those questions coming through of like, what would you want to tell your younger self? And like when I asked you this question, I, like I was like, what would you tell your younger self? But do you think you would actually listen? And I feel like that's the hard part, right? So, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't. What's crazy <laughs> is when I, so my hardest year of life was age 26, which we will get to later. So 18 to 22 year old Randa was as brave, confident, carefree, gave no Fs about what anybody thought about me and didn't care about popularity. Like if you told me I couldn't do it, I was going to do it twice and prove you wrong. I was just so, I don't know, on top of the world, I guess, since I was little bitty small town girl that made it at A&M and, you know, I was just like on top of the world. I really was like in my mind, in my mind. Now it changed a couple years later, some stuff happened and hit me. And I, so anyways, when I was struggling, then I was like, I need to think of who I was a few years ago. Like I've got this in me. And also two people don't understand the highs and the lows that come with being a business owner. Like you're saying, you know, with, with all the things that had changed you, maybe not at 18, you would tell yourself something, but maybe even a little bit older, you may have had even more figured out than what you thought you did. And here's another thing. And I know this is crazy because I'm older than probably a lot of the listeners, but Facebook wasn't even a thing until I graduated high school. And to join Facebook, it was only for universities. And it wasn't even for community colleges. You had to be a part of a university to be a part of Facebook. And it was so simple. Like there weren't even like pictures. You couldn't even upload pictures, I think, until a year after that. So, you know, now when I have like, you know, people who work for me or involved with my business or, you know, girls that I help mentor, they have grown up with social media since junior high, elementary I didn't have it until I was in college and it was so limited. Like, I don't even think I joined Instagram and it was for Southern Jewels until after I was out of college. Like, it wasn't even a thing. And I'm kind of thankful for oh, that. Oh, that's why I think that, you know, like I didn't, 
I didn't listen to what people had to say about me or I didn't care. I didn't care if I was taking pictures and people were liking it or commenting or what they were saying. I didn't play like manipulation games with social media or text messages with girlfriends. Like I just did me and lived my life. Yeah. And I think that's something too, that our kids were going to have to really put a big emphasis on is comparison is the thief of joy like we didn't right. have to worry about that like maybe um you know sally got new shoes like new toms mm-hmm. and that was yeah, yeah. the glittery shoes <laughs> to school but like that was the biggest form of comparison right. i ever had to deal with and it's such a different world now until now all right so we know a lot about randa in elementary and high school and college so i'm really curious about how grant comes into play so meeting someone in a college town like that sounds like a yes, of because I literally was thinking I was going to have to go open a store in a bigger city or move to meet somebody. And I didn't meet Grant until I was 27, which it's not that old, but in a college town, it is because everyone in, in the town is 18 to 21 right. or 22 years old. And so there wasn't, or even like coming from a smaller town, you're considered unsuccessful if you don't have like a husband and yeah, kids. Yeah, it's by crazy. Like and I was still so single until, you know, 27, which I loved because I got to build myself and my business. And I didn't really like in high school, didn't really date much. Like I wasn't involved with boys. I was, you know, focused on like doing good with my grades and my projects and stuff like that. And then in college, I, um, I, I had one boyfriend after college for like two years but kind of one in college for maybe a couple months. Like that was it. Like I really don't have that much like dating history, if you will. There's no, like I always tell Grant, there's no ones that got away in my past. <laughs> so tell me, how did you end up? So I met Grant. Grant, gosh, it was July of 2014. It was the week after I turned 27. And what's crazy is, you know, you talk about manifesting your life. Well, I would do that too. And there were two women that I looked up to a lot that had wonderful businesses and wonderful marriages. And so I like kind of tied my life kind of to them. And they had both met their husbands when they were 26. So I just knew 26 was my year. And I was fine with being single. But at the same time, you know, I was starting to get a little bit older than the girls who worked for me. And they would all be friends. And I was trying to like be the boss and like remove myself from that and not live in like the college party scene anymore. And, you know, most of my friends that were all my age or my, you know, like original group of friends were already married or starting to have kids. So I was kind of like the last of, of everyone, which I love it now, but looking back, that was hard. And so I think that's another reason why I kind of threw myself more into business. So when I turned 27, I had a really hard time with it. And I'm sure there's some listeners who are maybe 35 and single thinking, God, Randa, listen to yourself. But in my mind from that manifestation and those two women, I just, knew, like I felt it in my soul that I was going to meet my person at age 26. So I turned. And I also want to plug, like you can be a successful woman without having children. I think that's like more coming up and coming Mm -hmm. up and coming up. Like it's not as old school mentality that you have to have a husband and kids to be successful. So I also kind of want to plug that because that's a lot of DMs that I get are what if I don't want yeah. to like, cause we talked yeah. about that a and, lot. And you so. know, here was another thing. And this is, I've, I've mentioned it a lot about, you know, having a child is I didn't feel that things were necessarily missing from my life because I loved my job. I loved my energy. Like I loved the things that I did. Yeah. It absolutely. was your baby, but 
you know, once I started kind of getting to the mid twenties and then other, you know, all my friends were settling down or had been settled down, then that's when maybe some of the like loneliness starts to kick in. Cause you're like the boss. So you're not trying to hang out with the employees and you're older than people in the college town. So that's when it started to hit. And, um, what's crazy is I turned 27 on July 10th, my older brother got married on July 12th. So that weekend I was up in Dallas for their wedding. Well, that next week I had a booth at the FFA state convention in Fort Worth. So like when I went up for my brother's wedding, I just took the big Southern tools trailer already loaded, stayed over, you know, cause Dallas and Fort Worth are right next to each other. So I was up there for like the weekend for the wedding and then the full week for the show for my business. Well, whenever we were wrapping up the show and getting ready to break down the booth, which I don't know if y'all understand like what my Southern Jules booths used to be like at Vegas and at shows. I mean, it yes, was, it was house, house, I mean, I had like huge metal signs with like lights. I had like grid wall that's heavy and you can't carry more than two pieces at a time. I basically built walls and a whole store from a concrete slab inside of a, a expo center. Okay. And so I'm going to um, go hook up to the trailer because this is one good thing that's wonderful about me growing up like a stock show and rodeo girl is I knew how to drive a trailer. I knew how to do these things to take care of myself to do business stuff. Like if I wanted to go to a show, I didn't have to hire a driver or hire someone to haul my trailer. I could do it myself. So I went to go hook up. I had my brother's truck because I didn't drive a truck. So I would just trade vehicles with my brother and I got, got his truck. I went to go load up to my, I had like a huge, it used to be like a race car um, trailer, but it was fully enclosed. It was like 32 foot. I wrapped it in all the pink crowns and Southern jewels and it was raining outside. And I went to go grab everything so I could start breaking down. And the starter was out in my brother's truck and the jacks were out in the trailer and it was pouring down rain. So I was literally like stranded. Like I could not, I mean, I couldn't get the truck into the dealership until like the next day. I was on and off the phone with like trying to get people, like someone could come get me with just the truck, but like not the trailer. And I couldn't drive to college station without the trailer because my booth was still set up in the expo center. So I had to tear that down, put it in a corner until I could get another trailer. It was like nonsense. Yeah. It was like (laughs) horrible. Okay. (laughs) So the only thing that I knew. Yeah, but that's kind of why, yeah, like you've always oh, kind of been yes, a grinder. Totally. And I know that about So you. the only thing that I knew is like before this show, someone like multiple kind of mutual friends and mutual young professionals in my town were trying to set me up with this guy named Grant. But like, I didn't know his last name. I didn't know anything about him. And at that point I was coming off of my last breakup of literally, it wasn't even that big deal of a relationship, but it was like a rodeo guy who bull rode. That's how I met Cooper. Um, and I dated him for like four or five months, but you know, it, what hurt me so much through that breakup wasn't so much the guy besides the fact that it was the first time I was cheated on. But the reason why I kind of got in with that guy is I kind of let, you know, when you let your girlfriends kind of talk you into something like dating a guy, breaking up with a guy, because that's kind of what they want. So I dated this guy because these two quote unquote friends of mine, I feel like wanted me to date him. And there was a reason why, because it led one of them to someone else. So anyways, all that was going on. And I think what hurt me through that breakup is not only did I like get broken up with, get cheated on. And people kind of know me as like a little bit of successful with Southern Jewels. It's like embarrassing. But then it was like this whole like rodeo world was involved. Like all these people knew my business. Like, and it was crazy. Like my friends weren't really taken up for me. No. Do, do I ever? I, I was just like, what is this? You know? And I always thought I would, 
like marry someone who like ran cattle or, you know, live that Western lifestyle. And you know, that whole song, me and my kind by um, Cody Johnson, that is what Cody happened Johnson. to me right there. Yep. Okay. And so that was January. Me and my girlfriend went on, she had gotten out of an engagement and we went to Mexico for a reset in May. And when I come back from the Mexico trip, one of my other friends here that was trying to set me up with grants, like I have a guy for you. And I just shut it down. I didn't know who or what his first name. I just knew it was not the right time. And she's like, I thought that's what that trip was for was for you to reset. And I was like, I am still too hurt. I'm not ready to like open my heart back up. I'm still mending and I am mature enough to know that you're probably going to set me up with a really good guy and I'm not there time-wise. And I don't want to mess that up because of me not being ready. And I felt like that was very mature for me. Definitely. So let me get this straight. You declined a date that you didn't know it was green. Yes. And there were like three different young professionals trying to set me up, but I never knew his name. Someone did say the word grant one time, but that was it until I'm coming home from that show. And I had had like, um, I think the dealership had like fixed my brother's truck. I had to like hire, like rent this forklift to like put the trailer on my truck. So I'm coming home. And while I'm coming home, my hairdresser who owns the hair salon and she went to high school with Grant. She was one of the three trying to set us up. She was like, Hey, like I just cut Grant Haraba's hair and he still really wants to meet you. Can I give him your number? And I'm like, last name Caraba, which that's a whole nother story because the competitors that were not very friendly to me in the boutique world actually had to do with Grant's grandfather's side. Like he ended up getting remarried and it was like all of them. So I knew the Caraba name from like all of that in like the stock show world. And I did know that the Carabas and Brian owned gooseneck trailers. So that was the saving grace that gave that wanted me to give Grant my number is I was driving home with a broken trailer <laughs> and I hear, and not just that, but like gooseneck and you're yeah. into the farming and like cattle industry. So I never so known it was Grant Caraba until my, you know, my friend Tiffany said that. And she's like, no, it's Grant Caraba. He still wants to meet you. I just cut his hair. Can I give him your number? And I'm like, Caraba, it clicked. I was like, they own gooseneck trailers. My dad had said, as soon as you get to Brian, like take the trailer to gooseneck, get it fixed. So I was like, yes, actually give him my number because I'm in need. <laughs> because I'm in need of a new trailer. So I'm driving <laughs> to gooseneck and I have no makeup on. I look like I've been through the worst last 24 hours of my life because I had, I had wet hair from being rained on. I mean, I looked awful. And all I know is when I pulled up, I just said, dear God, whoever this Grant Caraba guy is, please do not let him be here and see me like this. <laughs> No, he wasn't. Was he there? So I pulled up and he had just texted me. He was like, hey, Randa, this is Grant Caraba. Tiffany gave me your number. She told me about the troubles you're having. We'll get you all taken care of at Gooseneck. Just ask for Mark at the parts department. So I pull up, I walk into the parts building and there's one of their employees. He's like, oh, are you Randa? Grant told me. They like literally come out there with a forklift to take the trailer off. I'm like, have it. Like, I don't even want it back anymore. (laughs) Just take this thing. (laughs) So that is how... Like Grant and I still hadn't met. He had no social media. I knew nothing of what he looked like. He was just texting me and helping me with my trailer. And he checked on me a couple hours later, like making sure that I got home and let me know like an update with the trailer. And I thought that was really nice because before any of the guys I dated were either younger than me or less responsible than me. And I would, again, kind of back to my roots of like taking care of my brother, you know, through some of the hard like medical times of my family is I would always take care of or try to like fix 
someone in a relationship, right? So I never had someone who would actually help me out or take care of me. And so I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like this guy's helping me check in this on is me. This a change you know? in pace. So then that was a Friday night. Well, Saturday, Grant is texting Tiffany, the girl who was one of the girls who was setting us up. And he was like, hey, I really want to meet Rando. We're all going to be out at this, you know, country Western dance bar tonight after like a softball tournament. You know, can you bring her? And she said something to me and I went to one of my friend's houses who'd been married over 10 years. And I'm like, I'm going to listen to someone who's been married for a long time rather than listen to these single girlfriends that play these text message games. Right. I need a sound advice. Exactly. So I went there and this friend was also one of the other ones trying to set us up. And she's like, listen, I want you to meet Grant too, but that is not the way it happens. You know, that's really nice. He's going through Tiffany where you're comfortable, but if he wants to meet you, he needs to set it up with you dinner, not through a friend. And I was like, yeah, and you don't want to meet somebody at the bar. I feel like that's just such a hard place to it even is, but we actually met there the first time. <laughs> oh, so well, here's kind of what happened. So she was like, he needs to set it up through you, not a friend. So I told Tiffany right away, I was like, hey, thanks for the invite, but no thanks. I feel if Grant wants to meet me, then he needs to ask me and not you. Just very blunt because my married friend said, you have to set the bar for how you want to be treated from the beginning. You know, so if you want him to reach out to you. Agreed. I think that that's kind of like a really good, just kind of a reflection of, hey, this yes. is how we're going to run it. Absolutely. Don't do the game. So as soon as I said that, I had a text from Grant. Hey, Randa, it's Grant. We're going to be out at this, you know, country Western bar tomorrow night or tonight after this. And, you know, I told him maybe like I didn't know. And then I called my girlfriends, Tiffany, another one. I'm like, we're going, but don't tell them we're going, you know? And the reason why I think it was an okay setting is it wasn't just like a bar. It was more like a dance hall, if you will. And like, it wasn't like this uncomfortable, awkward, just blind date because he didn't even have social media. It was like, I got to go out. He had his whole softball team there and I had my girlfriends there. So we were kind of like, if I wasn't going to like him, I could just be there with my girlfriends. You know what I mean? Rather than like stuck at this awkward date. Yeah, I think that's good too. You know, I can't say much because the first time I met Cooper was at Buffalo mm -hmm. Wild Wings with friends. So sometimes it kind of helped. Yes. Like so we met at, um, where was, what's the name of the bar? Gosh, Rockies. And I walk up to the bar to order me and my girlfriend drinks. And as soon as I'm ordering us drinks, he walks up and he pays for all of them, which I am again, I'm not used to that. I'm used to friends using me because I had a business and I had to pay for everything. So he walks up, pays for not only my drink, but my girlfriend's drinks. And he's like, hey, I'm Grant. Nice to meet you. And I thought Grant was, and I still do. I think he's the most handsome man I've ever laid eyes on. And I'm like, okay, like I'm, I'm kind of digging this, you know, <laughs> but he was wearing like a softball uniform with like this digitized camo. Like, you know, you could tell we weren't both like all dressed up to go out, like on a, just a date to meet each other, which kind of kept it a little more casual and comfortable to where we could just get to know each other. We talked all night, we danced and Grant, God bless his soul. He's not what you would say the best, like silver tongue with girls, which is a blessing too, because he's just very upfront and honest. He's not one of those guys who could be like talking to three girls at the same time and be so sly about it. Because like, as we're talking, he, he told me he knew where I lived and I like that. Yeah. I like oh, backed up, right. put my arms up. I was like, are you a stalker? Like I just met you. How the, how the <laughs> hell do you know where I live? And you, you should not tell me that. Like, 
whether you know or not know, let me help you out from a dating perspective. Do not tell that. Don't ever tell someone that ever again, you know? And I think he got a little bit embarrassed of it, but he's like, no, listen. So Grant's the, I lived in Austin's colony. Grant lived in Austin's estates. We now live in Riverstone and there are three of the four subdivisions all right here. So basically I lived halfway in the middle between Grant and his parents, had no idea of it. I lived in subdivision that used to be Grant's family land that he developed into the neighborhoods. And that's what he does. So he was like, um, I know where you live because you live in Austin's colony. You live on a cul-de-sac all by yourself. You park your big trailer and you run that cul-de-sac like it's your own. And I have had, I have had 34 complaint emails from the homeowners that have wanted me to write you up and to ask you to never bring your trailer there ever again. But I know that you're a young woman who owns your own business and that you're on the cul-de-sac by yourself. So I allow it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, you're probably like, I never knew Yeah, and then he's like, and I live like three streets behind you in Austin's estates. So, like, what was crazy is. I'm shocked y'all didn't well, run into each other Well, I swear to God, before. I never knew who this Grant Caraba was. And let me tell you, if anyone's listening that is trying to date a neighbor, pay attention to these tips. Because it went from, I never saw him, I never knew him, he had no social media, to literally every time I left, walked outside of my house, he was right there. And I was like. I was finally onto his thing. I'm like, you're just trying to walk by to see me. I would come home from dinner with friends at 10 p.m. He'd be like on a run. I'd come home at 5 p.m. from work. He'd be on a walk. My brother's truck, like he had this old truck he was working on. It was like broke down in the middle of the road. So embarrassing. Grant comes by. Like I was taking my trash out, hung over AF one day. Grant drives by in a different vehicle than what I know. Like he had two vehicles. I didn't know it. He rolls down the window like, hey, what are you doing? I like run in my house and call my girlfriends. I'm like, I have to get dressed to walk outside of my house to even take the trash out now. Or move. Or move. <laughs> or or yeah. start dating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he was. So tell us about so after, after that we date. Met, um, I kind of didn't hear from Grant. And I thought it was really strange. But I mean, he did. He will tell you that he didn't like my outfit. Um, he loved me even in my chunkier days because oh, I weighed 40 pounds more. Yeah, he what? hated what I was wearing. But it wasn't, he tells me, it's not that he didn't ask me on a date because of what I was wearing. He was actually kind of talking to a girl from Houston. And um, so I didn't hear from him for a few weeks. And I remember just kind of, I was out again with my married girlfriend, the one that originally told me how to set the standards. And I was out with her for dinner and we had a couple uh, margaritas and she just texted him like from my phone this one Saturday night, a couple weeks later. And she was like, are you ever going to ask me on a date and sends it? And I'm like, you can't do that. That's not how this dating stuff works. And she's like, just chill. So she yes. took your phone yes. and, and said, are you never going to ask me on a date? And I was like, I'm never going to hear from him. Oh, my God, I've got to move. I can't show my face anymore. You know, all the drama. An hour later, he says, I'll call you tomorrow. And we had never talked on the phone. He never said he would call me. He, he never even hardly responded to my text. And now that I know Grant and Mr. Notification, I'm like, you don't ignore anybody. How the hell did you ignore me? <laughs> so so he called me the next for, morning was it and because he said, hey, girl. I just have to be very honest the reason why I have not asked you on a date is when I met you, you know, my friends wanted me to meet you. He said, I'm not dating another girl. I'm just kind of, I was kind of casually talking to a girl that I knew from high school. And I want to be so respectful that I didn't want to be asking you on a date while I was kind of talking to her. And he said, I, you know, gave it a few more weeks. The distance thing isn't going to work. We kind of actually just had this talk a couple of days ago, but I didn't want to jump straight to you. Um, but he said, 
you know, there's the reason why I haven't asked you on a date. And I remember calling one of my guy friends and he was like, Randa, you are never going to meet a man that is that honest with you ever. He's like, do you understand with him being your neighbor? He could have been dating you all during the week and then gone to Houston on the weekends with this girl. He didn't have to wait weeks. Said yeah, he was working nothing. and you'd know nothing. Instead, he went cold turkey on me until he figured out, was that going anywhere? Once he figured out it wasn't, he let, let it die for a few days until I, my friend calls him out on my phone. And he's like, I'll call you. And so that next day he called me. We talked on the phone. I never talked to him on the phone. And it was like something changed. He asked me um, to go dove hunting the next day. I mean, we went out like every single day that next week and we were neighbors I and mean, it was so convenient. We were hanging out every day to where finally I'm like, I need the day to like spray tan and do my nails and like <laughs> catch up on my Yes. Nails. Well, I think this is like crazy because I would have never thought that someone would not like you ran to crop us out. Yeah. But at the I'm same time, like he didn't, he didn't <laughs> understand the rodeo world. So like six months into us dating, I was like, Hey, will you help me clean out my closet? And he loved cleaning out so much of like my, westerny stuff if that makes sense like he loved the like blingy boots that I wore last week to PBR but like the real country westerny stuff that like serape and stuff is not his style but also I don't really think it's your style either because looking back at your southern jewel stuff it always was a correct bit more but glamour. I also think up until that point Grant always dated these like Houston city girls and so here's like this small town girl that owns this like kind of country boutique and even though I was still more glam I'm still wearing like fringe and stuff that like these city girls didn't wear you know what I mean I totally get that because I kind of resonate more with the yes. mix of both like how yes. your southern jewels was so I think maybe we should go ahead and leave a little yes. bit of cliffhanger for the listeners on what happens next with you and Grant because I'm really curious to know after well I will that say we hunt, hung out happens. every single night that week and so this was like two months after we met at this point, Grant and I still had never had our first kiss. So we took it very, very slow. So I kind of want to hit on that because I know there's. Which never also never happens. happens these days. And let me tell you, anyways, I'll leave the cliffhanger that I'll finally talk you, talk the listeners through how and when we had our first kiss and how like just respectful and slow Grant took this that. Honestly, I finally had like a breath of fresh air for humanity and mankind again. I know that sounds dramatic, but, you know, I saw the way that my my dad loves my mom immensely. Um, my brother has been raised seeing a wonderful marriage. I've been raised seeing a wonderful marriage. My parents have been married 35 years. My grandparents have been married 64 years. My great grandparents were married 68 years before they passed away. So I come from a long, you know, history of wonderful loving marriages that made it work and so then when you kind of start dating in this age where snapchat was coming around and social media and living in a college town and people are in some of these rodeo guys like I know Coop's wonderful and there are wonderful rodeo guys but then there's also the real crappy ones that treat girls really badly um, let me start by saying when I met Cooper he was pretty <laughs> rowdy <laughs> no, but, you know you kind of go through all that that I was like I, I can't believe that there's such a gentleman you know, treating me so kindly and respectfully and slowly with everything. So that's where I'll leave the cliffhanger because we still didn't have our, our first kiss for a couple weeks at this point. Well, for our next episode, we can really talk about like, you know, you're, you meeting Grant. And then I think it's really important to say, because when you met Grant, you already yes. had Southern Jewels and maybe that was like at the height. Yes. Of because Jules. Grant and I, once we were officially dating two weeks in, he was my date to Aggie 100 where I had 
and still to this day was the youngest female to make the Aggie 100, which is like five years previous of business, your average growth rate. And I was number 11 of the top 100 Aggie owned companies. And he, I, he was my day. And I bet he oh, thought yeah, that was he pretty did. hot. He loved it. And that's one thing that's wonderful about Grant and I is him growing up with so much business background. He loved a woman who knew and understood business. And, you know, like when he was my date, everyone kept thinking I was his date. Like they would shake Grant's hand at this event and he's like, no, he's the, and you're like, uh, he's the no winner. Thanks. I'm her date. And I think that was wonderful for Grant too, growing up from a more wealthy family and maybe some girls that would have maybe wanted to date him for some other incentives. I think it was really wonderful for Grant to have a different scenario for him, you know, that someone wasn't there based off of his accolades or his money. It was like, Hey, I've got this too. Uh, but his parents kind of loved Completely. you immediately. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. they're like, yeah, we'll go. Over you know, <laughs> when he asked me to meet his parents, I was like, are you sure? Cause I'm really good with parents. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. they're going to love me and they're, they're going to keep me or yep. get rid of yep. you. Yep. One of the other. <laughs> okay. I think that's amazing. And I've learned a lot and I can't wait for our next episode. We'll have to see if we can push it out again pretty quick because I think people are going to yes. want to know. I'll edit I this know. out and up. And remember, if you're listening, go ahead and screenshot, share this to your Instagram story, tag unbothered blondes. We would love a review. We would love to hear future questions you want answered and we'll continue to dive in more next week. Thank you for listening and thank you.